When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello. Welcome to Emotional Badass, where Moxie meets Mindful. I'm your host, Nikki Eisenhower, life coach and psychotherapist. And on today's episode, I'm discussing emotional do's and don'ts for the new year. Hello, y'all. Happy New Year. If you're a long-term listener, it's nice to be with you again. I hope you had a wonderful holiday and a wonderful close to last year. Thank you for being out there in the world doing the inner work to heal yourself. If you're a new listener, welcome. Happy New Year to you. Just pull up a chair, have a cup of tea when you come to sit with me. Some people like to have a journal by their side to take notes. Many listeners have told me over the years, which is such an honor, that my show is not for background. It's to sit and to take in, sometimes to marinate, sometimes to re-listen, and to take a little nugget as it matters to you. It's part of why I love to do this show and love to be a podcaster. I know in healing and self-development and expanding ourselves that sometimes it's just one little thing that we hear that gives us what we need for that moment or that day, or to steer the ship of who we are. So today what I have for you are a list of emotional do's and don'ts in the new year. So when I share, kind of in general, but definitely when I'm sharing do's and don'ts, what I encourage is for you to take what works for you and leave the rest. Now I encourage this a lot and in all things. I think it is our job and our birthright to learn to be true to ourselves, to learn what that is. It is your job to decide what to take and what to leave in all things. Maybe from this list of do's and don'ts that I have, maybe you pick just one that resonates with you today. Or maybe this is an exploration for you. Maybe this list will work as a reminder of all you've already done. We have a lot in the works for you in 2024, so make sure you're following us. You're subscribed to the show. Make sure you're following us on Instagram, on YouTube, on our mailing list if you want to stay connected and if you're interested in new offerings from me this year. All right, so do's and don'ts, right? We are emotional people. We are deep people. Whether you are highly sensitive by birth or whether you think you are more highly sensitive from trauma and you are on a path to recover, These are my do's and don'ts. And number one is sometimes shocking. Do not obsess on healing. Now, early in my career as a therapist, this is my 18th year of being in mental health, but early in my career, I began realizing that I was one of the few therapists who would give what I might call 
anti-homework. Still to this day, when I have one-on-ones with people, very often I find myself moved to say, hey, what do you think? Because I kind of think that was enough for today. I don't want you to rehash this session or rehash this episode. Go outside. Go blow some bubbles. Go chill and watch a comedy. Go hang with your pets. Go on a walk. Go listen to something that's fun or makes you want to shake your booty and dance. Go live. Now, you will not heal faster by trying to live life through some kind of self-appointed healing intensive. You can't cram your healing in like that. It, It just doesn't work that way. If it did, I would be like, yeah, sign yourself up for these intensives and just lean in until you feel better. It just doesn't work that way. We have to learn new ways of being, new ideas, new ways of thinking, new ways of holding space for ourselves, of releasing emotion, of processing this life. And that means that we have to also meet life where life is and allow it to unfold so that we have time and space and experience to practice these new things that we're learning, these new ideas, these new ways of being. A hard truth and a a truth that we don't like is that being in our head alone, head knowledge, it won't heal us in the ways that we want. Healing is a lot of learning to leave our headspace, this overthinking, overprocessing, analysis paralysis zone. We heal a lot by being with our bodies, by being embodied, by being present in the experience of being instead of taking ourselves out of the experience of life by going to our thinker, by going to our head. When people talk about being present, another way to say that is being in our bodies. See, our head takes us far too often into the past where we rehash, we ruminate, and then into the future where we anxiously try to control what hasn't happened yet. Or we run into the future fantasizing just to escape the present moment of right now. If we're healing a tumultuous childhood, we can understand that we learn to go to our heads to escape some of the uncomfortable tension in our childhoods. If that is a pattern we learned from dysfunction, then continuing that pattern now in healing is not a great way to be. It's not a great thing to continue. This is exactly part of what we reprogram as we heal. When we are more present, we are embodied. Healing is the transmutation of knowledge into wisdom, not just wisdom for the mind, not just wisdom in terms of really smart, wise thoughts, into the wisdom of the body, the wisdom of the soul, as well as the mind. Now, one of the very sad truths when we're recovering from a difficult childhood is that it's easy to feel behind. It's easy to feel like my dysfunction, my trauma has taken up so much of my bandwidth for life that I am behind the curve. Therefore, I need to hurry up and get there. This is not a helpful or a useful idea in healing, y'all. Because there is nowhere to get. There is only where you are right now. 
And we do better for our nervous systems and for our minds to not practice being other than where we are. See, we did that as kids. We did that in our struggle. To continue that now is to continue something that's from the very trauma we're trying to heal. There's nowhere to get. There's nowhere to go. Be with yourself where you are now. This is one of the best things to understand about healing so that you can heal faster. No, I'm not giving permission to avoid what needs attention, intention, or change. But I'm hoping that you will give yourself permission to not obsess and think that that's a faster way to heal when it will actually take you backwards. Because keeping your body and mind in a state of high stress is what you survived as a child if you come from a tough environment. So not recreating that is essential. To learn to thrive, we must give ourselves permission to leave survival. I don't want you leaving a therapy session trying to survive your life as a practice. Learning to live your life is an important resiliency. Sometimes it's even a radical act of rebellion against those parts of us that want to stay in hypervigilance. Number two, here is a do for you. Do listen to your gut. Over time, the more that you listen to your gut, paying attention, putting intention on listening to your gut, the more you will be able to decipher the difference between anxiety and intuition. This is a big deal for a highly sensitive person. This is a big deal for someone who has lived a lot of life hypervigilant, which means almost everything seems anxiety producing, which means you can't really decipher what is and what isn't. When we learn to listen to our intuition, that's step one. Step two in learning the difference between intuition and anxiety is learning to act from our guts. See, most of us have a gut idea, a gut intuition, a gut response to something. And it's very quick. It's not from our thinking parts. It's from a deeper part of us. But we don't like what our guts say. Like if I meet a new person, I don't like when my gut goes, nope, this isn't going to work. Oil and water. As a child, I had a lot of intuitions about what was going on in my home, but I couldn't get in the car and drive away. I couldn't make a change for myself or take myself out of that household. So to survive it, I had to learn to ignore my intuition and just run circles in my own head because I couldn't physically go away from the threats. So healing is coming back to allowing our intuition to be a tool in our lives. It's a fantastic tool. It's just trauma has to override our intuition at a point. Healing is coming back to giving intuition permission to be a guidance system. So we first start giving ourselves permission to listen to it, to pay attention to it instead of ignore it. And then the next step is to learn to act from our intuition. See, in that moment where I meet a new person 
and I really don't like them. It feels like oil and water. We are not going to mix well. And my intuition knows that. Old, younger me from old dysfunctional programming would leave my gut, run up to my head, and spin a story about why I needed to ignore and override my intuitive gut. Oh, this is so-and-so's friend. You should give them a second chance. Maybe they'll grow on you. Things that sound so lovely, so nice, except they're not very nice to me because I'm participating in ignoring myself. So healing is a lot of learning how to listen to our gut without talking ourselves out of it and, and learning how to act from what our intuition knows. That means in that moment, if I don't like someone, I have to move away from that conversation or shut down that conversation or shut down the kind of energy that says to people, yes, I'm willing to do more with you. I would very much like to share my energy with you. People-pleasing and codependency often tell us that the right thing to do is override ourselves and allow other people to use up our energy, people that we don't want to be using our energy. If you want ease in your life, if you want more thriving than surviving, even surviving uncomfortable conversations, then you will listen to your gut and you will give yourself permission to start acting from it. Now, the truth is, have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask them all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? Well, we hear you and we have been there too. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. Who are we? I'm Dr. Jess Steyer, a public health scientist and also co-host of the Unbiased Science Podcast. Every day, I'll chat with one or both of your new pediatrician besties, Dr. Dina DiMaggio, a general pediatrician, and Dr. Anthony Porto, a pediatric gastroenterologist. We'll talk about all the things related to our kids' health from dealing with a colicky infant to navigating puberty in the teenage years. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, now live on all podcast platforms. To get back into alignment with our intuitive birthright, we must be willing to take some emotional risk and be willing to get it wrong. Mistakes are how we learn, y'all. And to understand more of how our intuition works, how it's a tool for us and with ourselves, we have to be willing to fumble around with that tool. Just like a baby going from crawling to walking and then to running in toddlerhood. If we told that baby, okay, you can stand up and you can start to walk, but you're not allowed to make any mistakes, that child would have an almost impossible time actually learning what it is to coordinate everything in the body to be able to walk and balance and then run and balance. I'm willing to bet any of you can look at a small child and be in full agreement with that. Of course, we must make mistakes as human beings to learn. But if we were raised by someone or more than one adult person with low maturity or low empathy, 
high reactivity, who didn't really have that special stuff to be very patient with a child, then you were likely taught to believe that mistakes are for idiots or morons, that mistakes come with shaming and judgment and shooting. Common shootings here, notice what your gut does as I go through these, are you should have known better. You should have been more careful. You should have been more intentional. You should have thought that through. You should have been more thoughtful. You should have planned ahead. Did I get all the major shoulds? I grew up with a massively codependent should that I should think for the younger kids I was in charge of, that it was my job. Sometimes when I was in charge of 12 other kids, no wonder I was programmed to overthink and overfunction for other people. This leads me to number three. Here's a don't. Don't shoot on yourself. And this is either a reminder that makes you smile or the very first time you're hearing anyone put it this way to you. Don't shoot on yourself. And it feels how it sounds. Will 2024 be the year that you finally let this go? Mistakes are opportunities to learn, to do better. The vibe when we fail or make a mistake, it's really not to shame ourselves into the ground. The vibe, a healthy vibe around making a mistake is to be rightfully bummed, bummed out, little reasonably disappointed. Like if I go to shoot a basketball in the hoop, it is a-okay and healthy that I'm a little bummed out if I completely airball that sucker. Now I want to use that to motivate me to then maybe hit the backboard and then get it through that basketball hoop. We want to learn how to be bummed swiftly and then bounce, not just the ball, but ourselves, our mood. That's what resiliency is. This bummed out quality when we shoot the ball or we, we go for something and we don't nail it. We don't get it right. We don't complete it. We don't finish something. It's a healthy drive, but it can be overdone into perfectionism. It can be overdone to be used to shame ourselves, our lives, our experience, the parts of us that risk trying. And that just makes our world smaller. Our inner child goes, why should I try again if you're just shooting at me and shaming me? Aha, I'll be smarter than this dynamic. I just won't try at life. I'll play small. I won't risk anything ever again. That's not what we want for our lives. Shooting on ourselves, it feels how it sounds. So stop shooting on yourself this year. So how do you do that? Well, here's what I've got for you. Each time you hear a should, mindfully catch it. And remember, mindfulness in its simplest idea is just a little birdie that sits on your own little shoulder and just sort of observes and watches for you and learns to catch the things that are useful, important, and learns to just glance at and just watch and let go by like clouds on the wind the things that aren't. So each time that little birdie of mindfulness on your shoulder catches that you are shooting on yourself. Catch it and reframe it with this question. What can I learn about life or myself so I can handle this better next time? 
Notice what's not in this question. There's no shaming in it. Notice that it feels lighter than you should have done better. You should have known better. You should have thought that through more. The shame doesn't teach you anything other than to feel crappy about yourself. What can I learn about life? What can I learn about this human being, this human interaction? What can I learn about myself so I can handle that better next time? That's a definite do. Number four, do reframe the critical voice. And I mean reframe that sucker over and over and over and over again. You know how you wake up every day in full acceptance that you're going to have to breathe a whole lot? Nobody, I think, wakes up and goes, my goodness, I can't believe that I have to use my lungs to just breathe again. We radically accept that we're going to breathe. We radically accept that we need to drink water. We radically accept that we're going to go to the bathroom to regulate our system. What if I asked you to radically accept reframing the critical voice every damn time you catch that sucker? I hope that 2024 is the year that you stop thinking the critical voice is your wisest voice. It's not. And that's the trick that it plays. Nobody's critical voice comes in like some kind of goofball. The critical voice comes in with this know-it-all quality. I am the wisest self in here. I say the wisest things. Of course, a critical part is going to think that way. You ever met a critical person in real life that wasn't a know-it-all? Your critical voice is not your wisest voice. Healing from familial trauma in particular or familial immaturity in our parents means understanding that we do have these different voices inside of us. It's not multiple personalities. The smarter we are, the more complex our inner psyche. So this is actually a sign of intelligence, but it sure doesn't feel like it until you embrace this concept and learn to work with these different parts instead of it feeling like a chaotic free-for-all in there and you don't know who or what to listen to when or how much, the critical voice is not your wisest voice. You're turning down the volume on the critical voice and learning how to turn up the volume on your wise woman or your wise man voice. If any of the adults who parented you were critical with you, let's be real, not out of any massive cruelty necessarily, they're critical with themselves. Why wouldn't they be critical with you? That's the best they know how to do. But if any of the adults that parented you were critical with you, harsh, cold, shaming, what would happen if you radically accepted that you don't have to believe that the critical voice is your wisdom, is your highest self, because it's actually your lowest? What if you quit allowing your critical voice to play that cruel trick on you? Now, go to your gut when I say this. Don't believe me just because I say it and I, I'm somebody out there that says I'm an expert in this stuff. Notice what your gut senses when I say this. Wisdom does not shame. I feel free and clear in my gut when I think that, when I say that, if I write that down, it feels as true to me as the sun comes up in the morning. Wisdom does not shame. Wisdom doesn't need to. Why the hell would wisdom need to shame? Wisdom doesn't shame the self and wisdom doesn't shame others. If you're a longtime listener, is this fair for me to say? I am firm and I am confrontive and I do not beat around the bush in this content that I put out there into the world. 
sometimes it's hard to hear a hard truth. It's hard to look in that mirror and own some stuff about this human experience that we all have had. But I don't shame because I've learned that it's pointless. I still have parts of me. I think I always will. I think it's human to, especially if we were so programmed young. To have parts that are just ready like, hey, you know what? I could totally shame you right now. Healing and expansion is the choice to say no to that invitation. No to that part that learned that old programming so long ago. Wisdom doesn't shame. It doesn't shame the self and it doesn't shame others. If we start to get a little shamey, let's have a check in with ourselves. If I start to get a little shame, it means I'm mad. It means I'm pissed off. There's probably a better way to be if I just slow down and gather myself. So much of what younger people in politics now think is advocacy now is screaming and dumping shame at and on people. What changes people is what inspires, not what shames. This is true at the level of society and politics. This is true at the level of the individual. How you will talk to and encourage and inspire yourself is so important on your journey. It's so important for your quality of life. And if you could choose to inspire and encourage yourself or anybody else or shame them, what's in the shaming choice for us other than our egos feeling righteous, above, more know-it-all-y? We'd all do well to just recognize that and be willing to let that go. And to also recognize that, my goodness, are we going to be on this planet with people who are never going to have such recognition? But you can do that work. I can do that work. Longtime listeners, you'll have heard me say this a lot. We heal the world one person at a time, starting with ourselves. And I'm so grateful that you were on this planet with me, making those choices, even when it's hard, even when it's messy, even when it's full of mistakes. Thank you for the quality of your own life that will flow into higher quality of other people's lives around you in the butterfly effect. And thank you for your inner child that absolutely, no matter what has happened to you, deserves the very best life that your wisest part can figure out for you. Number five, do differentiate shame and guilt. We must understand how to tease apart the nuanced difference between shame and guilt. So here's the difference, y'all. Guilt is about something I do. If we're at a wedding and you ask me to dance and I step on your toe, that little wave of guilt of, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, did I hurt you? That's my empathy, that's my compassion. And yes, it's my guilt, oh no. I feel badly that I may have hurt you by stepping on your foot. Guilt is there as a very healthy part of a human being in the human condition. That guilt motivates me. That bad feeling motivates me to say, I'm sorry. If I really, really stepped on your foot, I might go get you some ice or go, hey, maybe I need to even rub your foot a little bit if I really hurt you. It's to, to motivate to repair, to motivate to make right. We are a social being. This is part of how we were made. If we don't feel such a guilt, we might be sociopathic. We might be low empathy. We might have some narcissistic qualities that 
impede and impact our guilt, our, our actual care of other people. Guilt is about making that mistake, that moment, which motivates me to clean that up. And it will remind me to be very mindful of my feet as I dance so that I don't hurt your foot again or somebody else's. It teaches us, it guides us to be more mindful, more thoughtful, more considerate. Now, shame is beyond that moment. Shame builds up as the person I am. So if I step on your foot when you ask me to dance, shame is me feeling, believing, and self-talking at myself to say, God, I'm such a screw up. Every time somebody asks me to dance, I'm, st- I'm so out of control of my body. I can't even do it right. I just mess up every single time. What's wrong with me as a person? It's about feeling that there's something wrong. There's something bad for me to feel about who I am. That's dangerous. In healing, we're never going to not hurt another person. There's no way for me to promise that I'm never going to step on somebody's foot again in dancing or in life. So we have to learn how to feel guilty If five years from now I dance again and I step on another person, I don't want to go into a shame spiral. It says, oh my goodness, you didn't learn, Nikki. Here you are just stomping on more toes. When a kinder, more compassionate way of being is, hey, it's been five years. You haven't stepped on somebody's foot and you did and you owned it and you apologized and that's enough. When we're healing from a narcissistic parent wound, we never feel good enough. And the shame sits right here and eats away at us. We are good enough. In healing, we learn to make mistakes, to make amends, to atone, and to move on. Don't ever allow shame to settle in. And make sure that you are practicing not just the knowledge, but the wisdom of the difference between guilt and shame. Number six, do differentiate between sadness and depression. So these are two more emotions that are very important to differentiate. I was talking to a colleague recently, and we were talking about how you almost don't even hear anybody say sad anymore. It's as if society has decided every down emotion is depression. What a thing to reinforce when we feel a simple sadness. To say to ourselves, I'm depressed, I'm so depressed. You don't have a wave of depression in any given day. You have a wave of sadness. You have a wave of grief. You have a wave of hurt. You have a wave of allowing the critical voice to kick your booty down the road for a moment until you catch it and reframe. Again, go to your gut. Don't just take my word for it. Practice it with me. Say in your mind or out loud, maybe if you're driving or on a walk, I'm sad. And then say, I am depressed. What's the difference in feeling inside of you? For me, I can feel my inner younger parts feel a little desperate with that depression word. Depression has a stuck quality to it, like it's just there and it's inescapable and it's heavy. Sadness is an emotion we may feel multiple times a day. If I look at my sweet gusto, my standard poodle, and I think about his lifespan for a fraction of a second, I'm going to have a wave of sadness. And then I'm going to have a wave of gratitude 
that I get to spend the precious time, the little short window of time that our pets are alive and he's spending it with me. What a blessing, what a gift. There's an interplay of sweetness, of love, where if we are loving, we are also inviting sadness, aren't we? Our pets are a great example of this. We want to learn to normalize sad. We want to learn to acknowledge it, to feel it, to flow with it, to let it go, not to sit in it, not to make it gain weight and heft, not to name it and affirm that we are depressed. If you're raising children, this is very important to not mindlessly let your kids throw around this depression word. Do differentiate between sadness and depression. Nine times out of 10, you're sad. Let go of being attached to depression. Number seven, don't identify with mental illness. Yep, I'm saying it. Identify with strength, with fortitude, with resilience, with a beautiful sense of humor, with laughter, with lightness, with being a peaceful warrior. Identify with your career and how that might change over a lifetime. Identify as a pet owner. Identify as almost anything else other than your mental illness. I am absolutely gobsmacked that there are mental health professionals doing this online right now and modeling this. There are a few things that I will put into the category of a hard wrong for me, but this is one of them. Why? If you identify your identity, who you are, with something like depression, with something like bipolar, with something like trauma, how do you transcend it? How do you let it go? There's a sticky double-sided trap even to support groups. If you go to a depression support group, what happens if you start to get better? Are you leaving everybody behind? It's okay to get help. It's okay to acknowledge who you are, where you are, when you are. It's okay to use the identifiers of mental illness to read, to name, to understand. It is not part of your personal identity. It is something to let go of, to transcend, to work around, to heal, to grow beyond, not to identify with. If you are following professionals online, your gut knows, even if your head doesn't want to know. But if you are following these professionals online that are subtly, accidentally, not even intentionally encouraging you to stay attached to mental illness instead of let it go, please be mindful of that. Please make the intentional, mindful choices that you need to make. It's not about making anybody wrong. It's about you getting real about what is right for you. And if that's not right for you, I want to encourage you to own that, to look at it directly in the face and make some decisions. Number eight, do differentiate the difference between acknowledgement and dwelling, ruminating, or over-processing. Now, I am a trained therapist. I come from a clinical background. There's a lot that my mental health profession has done to help people in this world. And I believe there's a lot that we are doing in mental health that hurts people. I am unsure if do no harm is really a part of medicine anymore, physical health or mental health. I plan to say a lot more about that through this year. Very effective therapists are artful because this is an art. It has to be. The human experience must be an art. We cannot shoot everything in the human condition through science. 
I know that many people out there would like the control of that, would like the finite quality of being able to study everything in the human condition. As of right now, I don't believe that is even near possible. We have to learn what it is to move through this art form of humanity and to move through the art form of healing. As a client in therapy and as therapists in that chair of authority with our clients, there is a time and a place to share a story, to process, to process it again and again and again. And there is a time and a place to say enough. I am dwelling. I may not know the difference between dwelling and processing to let go. Am I nursing a little addiction to drama? If I am a therapist, am I scared to challenge my client about when is right to hold on and when is right to let go? When is there enough processing? If you are going to a therapist every single week and your life's not getting better, I would encourage you to ask this question of yourself and maybe even your paid healer. Am I processing and moving forward? Or am I ruminating, dwelling? This is very important to me in healing because it's a slippery slope from over-processing and ruminating and dwelling to victim mentality. No one heals in victim mentality. What I want for you, what I want for everyone is to understand that so that you are not spinning your wheels, wasting your time or your precious energy in this one life that we each get, spinning your wheels instead of moving forward. It's okay to not know the difference. It's important to ask and to make sure that you're moving forward. Number nine, it's a very important one. Are you ready? Do prioritize fun. Yep, fun. F-U-N, three-letter word, fun. To leave surviving and get to thriving, we have to understand it is a shift. You had to focus on what wasn't working to survive it. It's like being in a shipwreck. If your ship has gone down, you're treading water. You're looking for something to hang on to to survive, to float, to support you So you, until you can swim and to shore. But there's a time when we have to realize we've gotten to shore. We can stand on the shore. We still might feel and we might legitimately be on a deserted island, but we're no longer treading water. There's a point at which focusing on what isn't working backfires and keeps us in and with what isn't working. It's tragic to me that people would be putting effort towards wanting to feel better, wanting to heal, wanting to expand their lives and get stuck focusing on what isn't working, thinking that they're helping themselves. We have to let go of what wasn't fair. It's part of why I've shared so much of my intimate life. We are now in the sixth year of this show. I can't believe it. I've had a lot happen to me that is so far from fair. It's such a natural part of life. And it is true that if we sat down with some scorecards, some human beings have a lot more unfair than other human beings. That's part of what isn't fair. See how that layers? Stop trying to fight for what's fair. Your energy is too precious for that. Some of us get dealt different cards. You don't have to chew on this. 
so hard. I teach that when I teach boundaries. And no, I'm not teaching boundaries this year. I'm taking a year off in 2024. But every year in that course, when I have taught it, I say, please just experience this course. Please experience what I've put together for you. Just allow yourself to marinate and to let your, your eyes and ears go over the material. Don't crunch it and chew it and fight with it and wrestle it. It's okay to have more ease. And fun is an essential nutrient in our healing. I wept and wept and wept when someone pointed this out to me early in my healing. I would have liked to have thought of myself as a fun person. I knew how to have fun with babies. I knew how to be fun. But in a people-pleasing way was the truth. To just have fun, to invite fun, to allow fun, to give permission to fun for myself, that felt weird. As a recovering people pleaser, it felt wrong to use my energy on myself. Felt selfish in the bad way. I didn't know what it was to have fun with myself. Back then, I wasn't yet into plants. I wasn't yet into drawing. Now I would say I'm an artist. I didn't have any hobbies. Now I have lots of hobbies. Lots of fun. Don't dismiss fun as not heavy enough or therapeutic enough or technique enough to heal you. As much as it is hard work to recover, as much as it is hard work to awaken, to lift the veils of disillusionment and see ourselves and this life with more clarity, the balancer is to give yourself permission to not work so hard. And it's okay to be frustrated. One of my favorite group memories is little bitty woman getting mad at me and going, damn it, Nikki. It's like you're telling me to go left and right at the same time. It's like, yes, I'm sorry it sounds that way. Life is always going to pull us left and right. It's going to pull us in oppositional directions. And we balance and we center somewhere in the middle ground. We can give ourselves permission to have fun in that middle ground. Believe it or not, we can even start to have fun within the struggle. There are times where I have laughed and cried to feel a release and to find the fun and the struggle. And then maybe I've knocked over three glasses worth and there's glass and shards all over the ground. I'm trying not to step in it. I'm barefoot trying to keep my pets out of it, screaming at whoever's in my house to not come in barefoot. And in all that ridiculousness, all the stress, of, oh, I have to stop my life and clean this up. Maybe I broke something that really matters to me on top of it. There's such a power in recognizing I am the bringer of lightness, nobody else for me. So all of that can be true. It can suck royally any given moment. And we can flip a favorite song on, shake, shake our booty and sweep up the floor and laugh at the absurdity of life. Laugh at how life will sometimes go, hey, you know you think you're controlling all this? Yeah, well, you're going to stop. You're going to sweep up glass right now. We can fight that or we can laugh and let go. What if fun gets to be part of the practice too? Like an essential vitamin maybe you didn't ever know you really needed. Number 10, it's a reiteration of something I shared earlier. Act from your gut. Do act from your gut. When your gut says yes to something, I want you to trust that. When your gut says no to something, I want you to learn to trust that. 
This takes decades to master, y'all. I don't know if I'll ever truly master it. I know I am infinitely better than ever before in my life right now. And with more practice, I expect to continue to fine tune my intuition. Now, too many of y'all out there think that being nice means ignoring your gut and grinning and bearing people that you don't like or don't have time or space for, even if you like them very, very much. If I made this number 10 a don't, it would be don't endure and think it's kind. Many of you highly sensitive people are out there enduring things that you just don't need to endure. It's not kind to you to keep enduring what you really don't want to endure. And it's not kind to the people you're misleading with your fakery here. When your gut immediately says, I don't have time for this person today, when someone texts or calls or emails or reaches out to you in any way, start telling them what your gut said. Stop living life choosing to be confused or lost or shut down when your gut knows damn good and well what you want. I speak to a lot of sensitives who are scared of getting shamed for being direct or clear or to the point or no nonsense, blunt. If this is how you are, then this is your natural gift. Now, most of the people that I know that have been scared of being called blunt or bitchy or wrong, it's like they're fighting their own intuitive gift. I did it for many years. Some of the most conscientious, kind people I'm not talking about people who bluntly wield cruelty around and just say they're being bluntly honest. I'm talking about people with deep leadership, maturity, conscientiousness, despite the world being as unfair as it is, who walk to the beat of a drum that try to beat a beat of fairness in the world to the best of their ability. If you have this kind of directness in you, If you feel it and you sense it, but it's been sort of beaten down or swept under the rug of who you are because of your experience in this life, what if you made this a do? You're calling to be healthily assertive and direct. What if you just showed up and were yourself? You don't have to ignore your own gut anymore, but I can't say that to you. It's a permission that can only come from you. Ignoring your own gut is to be rude to you. And playing phony to someone, someone who's often being an energy vampire or a lovely human being who just needs to wait for their space and time with you. Stop dancing around what your gut says. It's exhausting. This is part of why you're exhausted. It's part of how you overthink and continue to practice overthinking. What if 2024 is the year that you give yourself permission to live from your gut? even if just as an experiment to see what happens. And then, number 11, you do let your feelings flow. If you're scared of someone thinking that you're just a mean old bitch because you got direct, what if you just allowed that feeling? What if you felt it? Feelings are meant to be felt. Feelings are not meant to be thought. And wow, do we wear ourselves out when we confuse that. So many of you are out there thinking your feelings, wondering why you're so exhausted. Think your thoughts and learn to feel your feelings. Do let your feelings flow. 
It's often why when someone is trying to think through the hardest of human emotions, desperation, anger or rage, deep, deep betrayal, regret is forlorn. It's easy to hop to suicidal thoughts and ideas because we're not supposed to think through those feelings. Because if I have a desperate feeling about whatever I'm going through and I add a whole lot of thoughts plus desperation, what do you think is going to happen? I'm going to feel like I can't escape myself. The next logical, and I do mean logical, thought, if we are thinking our feelings, is to think about how to escape ourselves because we feel so desperate. And that is going to lead to suicidal thoughts. And those suicidal thoughts are the only thing that leads to a suicidal act. To be truly safe with ourselves, I mean deeply safe. We accept and we practiced as we learn to allow the hardest of human emotions, the desperation, to just be felt versus creating a doomsday dialogue story inside of our heads. I happen to have a really, really terrible weekend. I'm having some hormonal struggles that absolutely throw my body and my mood sideways in ways that I don't fully have control over. I don't like that. I can tell you I downright hate it. I can feel some of these doomsday thoughts going through my head. I'm grateful that I have worked on myself enough to know that those are just thoughts and feelings getting mixed up and I have to just feel what I'm feeling until it passes and those thoughts are not real. They're just manifestations of my feelings playing through an old program. Like when I was a child, when I couldn't do anything else and I didn't have any support and I didn't have any coping strategies that the best my little self could figure out how to do was think my hardest emotions, which created desperation, escapism stories. I'm a big believer that we are to never, ever allow the gremlins of suicidal ideation to take hold. That our inner child looks up at our wise woman, our wise man, our highest self and goes, hey, what are you going to do with all these really craptastic feelings that are flooding my body right now? Healing isn't about hyper-controlling ourselves or logically thinking ourselves out of emotion. People who are experiencers of less emotion than a highly sensitive person love to beat the drum of logic as the most wise. Logic has its place, but it certainly is not everything. As a highly sensitive person, it is your job to learn how to ride the waves of your most difficult human emotions and disallow those emotions to take you to thoughts that are dangerous. If you're a new listener of the show, I have years and years and years of content. I'm a believer that we heal when other people show us more of their humanity because that's how and where we learn more about our own. You are your own authority figure. There is no healer out there that should ever, ever be allowed to take your authority in any kind of healthcare. You can always get second and third opinions, but you are your own authority figure. When you embody that strength as an adult, that reality, you will help yourself never be fodder for another master manipulator. You will help yourself stay true to your own course. 
And your inner child will look up at your wise self and feel safe because he or she will know, hey, no matter what happens, we can make wise decisions. We can ride these waves of emotion without hurting ourselves. Even if we panic, we can panic and let it move through and come back to center. Healing is so much about learning what to do and what no longer to do. This Wednesday, January 10th, is our next Patreon live stream Q&A. It's where you get to come and join and be surrounded by other people who are working on themselves, who resonate with my work, with the very specific and unique way that I try to explain what's going on with our emotional selves, our mental selves, and the impact it has on our physical bodies as we walk a healing, self-developed path towards thriving. I believe it's our birthright to thrive. And if you are surviving, I want you to know that no matter what you've survived, you can learn to put down that survivorship. You can learn to thrive. The next live stream topic at patreon.com backslash emotional badass is on parentification. If you were parentified, I personally invite you to come submit a question or play a fly on the wall. Someone else will ask a question that may very much resonate with you. That's part of what happens when we come together in a group. I'm the only one that is visible, so you won't see anybody. You won't have to show yourself or your space. You can chat very privately. I know this is a community of mostly introverts, but even as introverts, we benefit from coming together, from seeing that we're not alone that our questions, our struggles really are universal. It's part of why I get on this mic every week and have for six years. Because yes, it's my story, but it's also all of our stories. As different as we all are, in the emotionality of being a human being with deep compassion, we're very similar. We are proud to be a part of Airwave Media. Check them out to find more amazing podcasts. Light and love. I am an emotional badass. You are an emotional badass. And together, we are where Moxie meets Mindful. Light and love. And I will see you right here next time for a brand new episode. Bye-bye. find it hard to sleep at night, then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long.